Well, I made it. My family was a bit nervous, but I got it. So I keep telling the church and the elders that we're going to have to put a phone booth in there, right? So you just change really quick. But anyway, we're really, really thankful for, for you guys being a part of, of such a great uh, time together, just the joy of, of what it means to celebrate the work of God uh, in our life. But even through the scope of all of history, uh, th- this moment has, has resonated uh, ever since it happened. It's, it's life-altering, it's world-changing, and it wasn't just world-changing then. The empty tomb and the living Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit has implications for us now. Every moment of every day is living in light of the reality that the tomb was empty. And there's significance in that. We're going to jump into Mark 8 this morning. Uh, but before we get there, I was just thinking most recently, if any of you guys have ever eavesdropped on a conversation, maybe not intentionally, but just not that long ago, I was at a restaurant by myself just eating, and there were two individuals that were having a, well, let's just call it a spirited conversation. <laughs> when I was growing up, we called it an argument, but uh, I think it was a husband and a wife, it was a male and female, and they were discussing events. As best as I could tell, trying not to listen, but listening anyway, uh, there was a, there was some sense that they were thinking about the event that had brought them to have this discussion, and the event was the same event, and yet the versions of the impact of that event were miles apart. They were a thousand uh, miles different from one another in terms of what what they really thought the significance of that specific event was. And so that led to this spirited discussion, and, and it translated into a lot of different conversations, because usually as you start those discussions, they start off with, well, here's what happened, and then the debate is, well, I don't think that that's actually what happened, and then it moves to, well, here's who you are because of what you did in response to what had happened, and so it tends to just fall apart very quickly. But I was thinking about that, and I'm thinking about the, the challenge that you and I face, I even think on a regular basis, of wrestling with our own version of who we see Jesus to be. And it doesn't come as a criticism, nor necessarily an accusation, but we look at the events of our life, and we put that onto the backdrop of the empty tomb, and we think to ourselves, all right, here's Here's how God has communicated himself and the significance of what he's done as a, as a, uh, a sacrifice for the sins of humanity that, that surely by placing my faith and trust in his death on the cross and then his subsequent resurrection, I, I have life, I'm adopted into his family. And I know those all things are true, but that's, that's when the versions quickly begin to change. And here's how. We would think often that in the midst of that faith and that adoption into the family of God, that our life does change, and it, it certainly does, but there is a hope, I think, in sometimes that life would get a bit easier, maybe a little bit smoother, and, and even if just on the outset, maybe just a little bit more explicable. And yet, it doesn't always seem to be, well, let's be honest, it never seems to be the case, right? That we have this faith and this trust that Christ is working and that he's alive and that he's doing all of these things and we're celebrating the reality of what that means. And yet, our lives butt up against the versions of our own story on a regular basis. 
We've asked ourselves, what's Jesus doing? What, what version have we manufactured or thought of about who he is? And in the process, there leads to a whole host of different emotions and challenges that surface. Here's one theologian, uh, let's just call him a country theologian, uh, Kenny Chesney, uh, puts it this way. I suppose all of us are theologians, so I'm using that term loosely. But here's what he says in his song. Everybody wants to go to heaven, have a mansion high above the clouds. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. Said the preacher, maybe you didn't see me throw an extra 20 in the plate. There's one for everything I did last night and one to get me through today. Here's a 10 to help you remember. Next time you got the good Lord's ear, say I'm coming, but there ain't no hurry. I'm having fun down here. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. And I know you're grateful I didn't sing that, and I'm grateful I didn't sing it too. <laughs> but there is a sense in which there's just this, this tension that we live in, and in thinking about the the reality and the work that God has done and the, the empty tomb and the significance of what that means, but then also our lives of, of what we want and the narrative that we're writing and the desires and the hopes and the dreams that we have. So many seem unfulfilled. So many seem just out there. And, and as we look back on our lives, we would even say to ourselves, I'm not even certain that that's the story that I would have written. Enter in the gospel of Mark chapter 8. This comes before the crucifixion and before the empty tomb, but it becomes a part of preparation, if you will, for those who are closest to Jesus. It's as though he's been setting the stage to help them understand functionally, operationally, the reality of the kingdom, the, the reality of what God is doing, like how we could put our finger on, on the work that God is doing and how he's doing it because some of it seems inexplicable or c confusing. Our lives meet grief or hardship, challenge and frustration, and we find ourselves wondering if this is all there is in hopes that someday heaven will just be better, or is there a part where things are actually going okay and the thought of heaven seems far off and far-fetched? Mark chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 31, but it comes on the heels of of this really unique confession. So Peter is this guy that's been following Christ and, and loving and serving him and, and you're kind of zealously or at least passionately just communicating and, and championing who Christ is. And so he asked the fundamental question that all of us, I think, at one day have to face. And Jesus asks the question in verses 27 and before, and here's what he says. Who do people say that I am? What's the version that people have adopted when they look at me? When they examine who I am, am I a miracle worker? Am I a prophet? Am I somebody that's just a teacher? And, and here's how Peter describes some of the responses of what they think that he is. They told him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. And then finally, Jesus pairs it down to the most critical interaction, the one-on-one -on -one interaction. And I would even suggest that this very question was not just asked to Peter individually, but is asked to you and me individually. It is an individual response. And so here's what Jesus asks him. 
Who do you say that I am? The most critical part of that question is that the, the, the really challenge that exists is the noise and the adoption of what everybody has said about who I am and all of that confusion, does that have more influence and more substance and significance in developing who you think I am above and beyond who you know me to be? How much are we affected by the versions of people's understanding of Jesus around us versus Jesus's communication of who he is? Well, Peter gets it. Man, this dude nails it. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt how to answer this question. And here's what he says. You are the Christ. Interesting profession of faith. He communicates that this is the promised Messiah, the one that would save people from their sins. Matthew 121, they would give birth to a son and they would give him the name Jesus and he will save his people from their sin. And so, so Peter understands it. Like I would say that those of us who've been in church for a long time would, would make that same profession, would understand clearly the scope of who Jesus is. But then the, the next part of the text, which we're going to jump into, moves to the implications of that profession. What does it really mean? Because now that Peter stands as the pinnacle of the one who's actually made the right, he got the right answer, he said the right thing. He's quickly rebuked as someone who's believed a lie. It's interesting. Look with me, if you will. The, the passage will be up on the screen, and I'll read it all for us. Matthew 8, starting in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him and his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come to me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when his angels come in glory of his Father and with his holy angels. So you get this passage that begins to set up a, well, let's just say a bit of a microscope on the heart of Peter, but I think even in our own understanding of the version that in some ways we've created about who we think Jesus is. And often we, we would answer the same way that many of them did. Well, he seems like he's this guy, or he's maybe like this, but then Jesus communicates a reality and a significance that understanding who he is means that we also have to understand why he suffered. That there's a sense where he's preparing them for the cross, and, and really what he's doing is he's butting against the notion that somehow, in some way, this life affords for us the joys that only Jesus can. That what we want is both of those things. We want the good times, but we don't want 
the suffering, but we still want Jesus. And so there's all of this mixture of challenges that exist. And I think the text tells us this morning that as he's beginning to communicate, he uses a very interesting term. He says, he began to teach that the Son of Man must. There's a must associated with the purposeful actions of God on behalf of a sin-filled humanity. He's intentionally communicating, and the Bible even tells us that he communicated plainly, so confusion wasn't really part of the process. It was really that they understood what he was saying, but thought that maybe he had just misspoke. (laughs) He must suffer these things. And so Peter, in his passion to protect Jesus, maybe even from himself, communicates and took him aside and said, Jesus, you shouldn't say things like that. You shouldn't communicate those ways. And in that moment, Jesus communicates to Peter that he had bought into the lie that Satan has been filling this world with from day one. And that lie is that somehow, in some way, we can manufacture our own narrative. We can write what we want to write and do it in such a way that we can combine both what God has and what we want. And, and ultimately, what we believe is that what, what God wants is what we want anyway. And yet what he tells us here is that his must is our current hope. So his must, the suffering that he experiences in this life, the reality of his directed potential and progress towards the cross, the the reality of the crucifixion of Jesus, and three days later the empty tomb was purposeful. He must suffer these things. Why? So that there would be a sense that there's things outside of this world that have an influence and affect how we think, feel, and believe. That the reality of what Christ has done on our behalf sets the parameters for how we understand the world around us. His must is our current hope. The sense of knowing that Jesus Christ saw fit, even when the disciples were uncertain about what had taken place or what was going to take place, and even fearful that Jesus would be pulled out and actually go through these things and trying to prevent that, Jesus communicated very clearly that this isn't about suffering prevention. This is about relational reality. There's a hope and a truth and a faith that God has provided for us that it's ultimately about understanding that Christ has suffered on our behalf so that in the midst of our suffering, not only do we have someone who understands, but we have an advocate before the Father, one who loves us and is providing for us and experiencing a depth of relationship that is, supersedes all other things. There's a story that comes across in August of 2003 at a church in New York City, and I'd just like to share it with you briefly. It's the Church of the Holy Cross, and it was broken into twice in that time frame, in, in August of 2003. The first time it was broken into, the thieves made away with a metal money box resting next to it on the votive candle, trying to hope that they would find their next payday. Three, le- three weeks later, the vandals escaped with something much more valuable. They unbolted a four-foot-long, 200-pound plaster Jesus from the meditation area, taking the statue of Christ, but leaving behind his wooden cross on the wall. The church caretaker said this, David St. James confessed his bewilderment. They just decided, we're going to leave the cross and take Jesus. 
We don't know why they just took him. We figured that if you want the crucifix, you take the whole thing. In other words, St. James was saying that if you want Jesus, you have to take the cross too. And I think there's a, a significant poignant point in that reality of what Peter's even wrestling with in this text is that often that's what we want. We want a Jesus without the cross. And yet he communicates the reality of the suffering that took place and that there was a must that Jesus was doing for the, the purpose of providing for us a, a faith and an intimacy. So not only is his must our hope, but he communicates in this text that his must is also, his must is also our lasting joy. Here's what he, he says in this text. He called everyone together and he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Forever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. And then he explains what he's meaning by that. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can man give in return for his soul? Here's the economy of the kingdom that I think Jesus is really pushing against in our understanding is he's asking really what benefit is it? In the context of this life and, and recognizing that we live in a world of bad trade-offs, it's a terrible trade-off to think that the best thing that we can do is preserve our life in hopes that somehow what we think and what we feel and what we believe in this world is ultimately going to provide for us the satisfaction that only Jesus can. That, that ultimately satisfaction is found through relationship with Christ, through faith, through his death and resurrection. He has assembled and provided for us this, this intimacy that supersedes all things that you and I might experience. And so the question is, is really what good is it? I mean, if we carry through on Kenny Chesney theology, we would say, God, just let me live the fullest life I can right now in hopes that then down the road when I die, you and I will be all set and then heaven will be just that much better. And I'd like to suggest to you this morning that as we wrestle with the significance of what Peter's doing here and Jesus is teaching, is that ultimate joy, lasting joy, isn't found in this world. There's something that either you're going through or have been through that is called into question your version of Jesus. How good is he really in those moments? We, we want faith. We want to believe. We want him to work things out in significant ways. And we know that he's working as we're attempting to trust him, but it just feels so uncertain and so confusing. And I think what Jesus is getting at here is that the perfect presence of Jesus in the midst of our lives is enough all the time. That it's not as though we would have to manufacture a version of Jesus to get us through hard times, but that the true version of Jesus through the truth of his word has communicated to us that he is more than enough for every moment. I was a pastor in Vermont. My family and I, that's where we had started ministry and was there for 11 years. And boy, we went through <laughs> tremendous ups and downs. God moved in tremendous ways and there were infinite amounts of struggle in the midst of our life. But there was a kind of a pivotal moment that took place in the context of my ministry. There's a young boy who had gone through some heart surgery, and uh, we were all excited that life was going to go really, really well for him. We had waited until he was 10 to have this surgery. 
And then um, he had the surgery at Boston Children's. He was doing great. Things were good. He made his way home, and everything was awesome. Uh, and then he was with his grandmother on July 4th, and he collapsed. Made our way back into the hospital just to check and see how he was doing, and he seemed to be all right. Uh, and I said, well, what is it that you need? And he's like, man, the movies here are terrible. I'm like, okay, great. I ran home, got my portable DVD player, and as I turned into the house, I got the phone call that things had taken a turn for the worse. Made my way down there, and before I could get back to the room, they had already started open-heart surgery right there and trying to fix all the things that had gone wrong. As the story unfolds, he didn't make it, and I remember sitting in this cafeteria room in the hospital and three doctors coming in, and what did they say? We did the best we could, but he was just too sick. I say that to say that I wonder how often we've wondered if that's true for Jesus. <laughs> He's great and good. He tried his best, but this circumstance is just too much. That, that it's just too hard for him to do what really needs to be done. And so then we think that we have to figure it out on our own. I think the invitation that we get in Mark 8 and the whole process of this sermon series that we're starting today and going through the next four weeks is that there's this, this combination, this understanding of, of life to death and death to life and this, this nuance of what we find as we, we, we see this kind of seesawing back and forth is that the challenge is not just trying to understand who our version of Jesus is. The challenge is to really wrestle with what our version of life is. And Jesus gives it to us right here. Like, if there's a definition of life that we could plaster on our refrigerator or, uh, you know, tattoo on our backs or whatever, I don't know what you're into, but nonetheless, there, there's a question. And here it is. He tells us that whoever would seek to save his life, and I think what he means is that anyone who would think that, that you and I could somehow muster up enough courage and strength to do the life and live the life that we've want to live and, and make all the decisions and do things perfectly, it, it end up never really working out the way that you anticipated. Because life isn't found in us figuring out what life is. Life is found in Christ. He's the author of life itself. And so that's what he says. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. So what he's communicating clearly is that life, in essence, the fullness of what life is, is found in Christ. His suffering, his subsequent burial. Three days later, his resurrection and ascension to the Father, his ruling and reigning, the authority of Christ over all of humanity, inviting them into an intimate personal relationship with him. That's life. That's the definition of what life is. Not figuring out how to handle the challenges around us and the voices of, of who we want Jesus to be or who we think he should be. His must is our hope. His must is our lasting joy. And inevitably, his must is our get-to. That's what he says at the end of this text, is that it's not just that Jesus did these things to preserve for you eternity. Certainly, that's a huge Benny, but he didn't do it for fire insurance, right? That the hope that you and I wouldn't spend eternity separated from him in, in hell, he, he did it so that there was this reality of of fullness and life and purposefulness in this world that, that is a reflection of his character and his grace. And so that's what he tells them. Take up your cross and follow me. 
Now, what in the Sam Hill does that mean? I have no idea who Sam Hill is, but that's an expression, just so you know. What does it mean as we think about that? Well, what it means is that every single one of us have a reality of what is taking place in our life, that your story is unique. So he doesn't say, take up the cross, that somehow in some way your story and my story are all the same and he universalizes suffering. He's saying, I see the challenges that you face in the context of your life, that there are are burdens and cares and worries and uncertainties and life and joys and ups and downs, that you're walking and your journey matters. But walk your journey in reflection to the reality of what Christ has done on your behalf. That we move towards Jesus, realizing what he's done and what he continues to do. We serve a risen Savior, Christ the Lord. The tomb is empty. And so when we think of Paul communicating much the same thing in Galatians 2.20, for me to live, the, uh, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. That there's this hope and this knowledge of what God is doing on our behalf. A.W. Tozer said it this way, To be crucified means, first, the man on the cross is facing one direction. Second, he's not going back. And third, he has no future plans of his own. I love the thought of the reality that so often there's relief in this text. If his must is our get-to, and his must is our joy, and his must is our current hope, then we find this place of realizing that I don't have to figure it all out, nor do I have to do it perfectly. I'm invited into a relationship with a perfect Savior who is walking, working, and showing himself as worthy to be trusted in every moment. We serve a risen Savior. My hope and desire is that even this morning we would recommit and place our faith and trust in him. And maybe even if it's just for the first time, today's a great day to know that Jesus sees you, that he's loved you, he's suffered on your behalf, and that what he did, his must, is your current hope, your lasting joy, and our get-to. Would you pray with me?